So by way of review, this is a course on the Protestant Reformation and on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg and basically he was making uh, an open invitation for people to come and dispute 95 statements that he uh, came up with that he felt uh, needed to be stated in light of some of the things that were going on in the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And so we, we took a couple of weeks to study Martin Luther, and then uh, Glenn introduced you to uh, kind of an overview, I think, of Luther and Calvin. And then we talked about the Anabaptists. So within Protestantism, the three main groups, if you want to commit this to memory, are the Lutherans, the Anabaptists, and the Reformed Church. Now, it's called the Reformation, so the word's being used twice in different ways, but the Reformed Church is a reference to a specific group of people who held to certain beliefs that somewhat overlapped with the Lutherans but were different, that somewhat overlapped with the Anabaptists but were different. And oftentimes, because John Calvin was a key player in Reformed theology, it's also called Calvinism, just like Lutheranism, Calvinism. So, broadly speaking, when we think of uh, Lutheranism, the Anabaptists, and the Reformed, okay, broadly speaking, what what did they primarily contribute to the Protestant Reformation as distinct groups? So let's start with the Lutherans. What are we most appreciative of the Lutherans for? Okay. Okay, justification by faith alone. Right. And everything you just said as well. So really... Really, the focus was on reforming the doctrine of salvation, which in theological terms we call our soteriology. So if you're studying theology, there's ten branches to it. Soteriology is the word that we use for the doctrine of salvation. It comes from the Greek word soter, which means save, and ology coming from the word logos, which means word. So words about salvation. What are we appreciative of the Anabaptists for? What did they stress that the Lutherans really weren't stressing? Yep. Okay, the changed life. So very much thinking about the implications, lifestyle. Now again, we're speaking in generalities. The Lutherans were also concerned with that. The Anabaptists were also concerned with this. But we're just looking at what did they contribute that was kind of unique and helpful that the other group maybe didn't put as much emphasis on. Yep. Separation, church, and state. Okay, so... Separation of church and state, of uh, church and state, that was definitely an emphasis. Adam, did you have one? Believer's baptism. Okay, believer's baptism. In fact, they're the only group of the three that ever got there. So in Reformed reform churches today and the Lutheran churches today, they're still not there. They don't practice... Uh, Believer's baptism. Okay, now the Reformed Church, or the Calvinists. Again, they're concerned about the same things Lutherans and Anabaptists are concerned with. 
But what they contributed that was somewhat extra helpful is a high view of God. The sovereignty of God was brought back to the forefront. So a high, high view of God. Now, in each of you, as you're studying these three branches of Protestantism, should be connecting the dots. Yeah, yeah I, I believe that. Oh, I, don't, I don't believe that. I believe that. I don't believe that. So chances are, for most of you, you have benefited from each of these movements, whether you know it or not. And you've also discarded elements of each of these movements that, that you just aren't comfortable with. So that's okay. We don't, you don't have to fit into one of these camps to the exclusion of the other. So these are all the Protestants. These are the three main groups. We will spend a little bit of time talking about this hybrid group, kind of a hybrid of Protestants and Roman Catholics that popped up in England called the Anglicans. But they're sort of an animal unto themselves. Okay? They're, they're different than what we'll just call mainline uh, Protestants. And they really didn't have such a direct bearing on the, re the, the European Reformation as a whole, although they certainly had an influence on it in terms of where England stood and the British Isles stood. Okay, we'll get to that in another day. So tonight we're focusing on the reform. So we've talked about this, talked about this, talked about this. And as I mentioned, Glenn has already introduced you to one of the key figures, but we're going to look at his life uh, again tonight. And then we're going to talk about some of the immediate results of his influence. And then we're going to look at some of his key doctrines in this book, which I think you probably all, all heard of as well, called the Institutes of Christian Religion. This is the English version, okay? So originally in Latin. Okay, so let's talk about John Calvin. So John Calvin. How many of you have heard, though, heard of his name before you took this course? Not before tonight. You've all, all heard of him, Okay. How many of you have heard the term Calvinism? Okay. And how many of you have heard the term Reformed theology? Okay, good. So not, this is not something that you're completely unfamiliar with. So John Calvin, interesting guy. Very different personality than Luther. Different way of thinking, different background. Let's talk about John Calvin. He was born on July the 10th, 1509. So 1509, how many years before the Reformation started? Eight years. So eight years before the Reformation. So really what we have is, just in if you just want to kind of line this up in your mind age-wise, Luther is studying for his doctorate, and baby Johnny's born. So he's, he's younger than Luther, kind of like a generation younger. And he lives till uh, 1564. So he's about 54, 55 years old when he died. Didn't live as long as Luther. But uh, he was born in Noyon, N-O-Y-O-N, France. And was quite an intelligent child. He was a different personality than Luther. He would be considered, even as an adult, a bit antisocial, kind of shy, and he said, as he talked about that in years uh, in his adult life, that he, he always felt that he, while he was trying to kind of get away from people, God was always thrusting him into the limelight. So he wasn't a guy that was looking for it, but he was put into a position of leadership because he had a good mind and he was an excellent communicator. 
In terms of his thinking capacity, he was highly logical. If you read his writings, there, there is a definite logical sequence to them. Uh, we obviously don't have uh, sound bites of his sermons, but uh, the sermons that have existed, he typically would write two a week. So they were published later in various volumes. Strangely, the Genevan government, the, the city that we're going to talk about that he spent most of his time in, I think in around 1809, auctioned off or sold off all of his sermons. And only about a, a third to a half of them have been recovered since. It's kind of disappeared. I, I don't know who, who took them, but it was just kind of a weird thing to do, a little bit strange to do that with a historical document. But maybe at the time they didn't think it was quite as important as we would think of it as today. Anyway, he was highly logical, did a lot of preaching. His theological writings influenced 16th and 17th century Europe and continue to influence the world today. So this is why we still have copies of his book, for example, one of his key books. You can still buy this today because it, his writings continue to influence various denominations and Christianity as a whole today. He preached, and for certain periods of his life, he also functioned as a pastor. But unlike Luther, he was never an ordained minister. So he was never acknowledged or recognized by any particular group as an ordained pastor, as would have been commonplace at the time. He really was more of a theologian. So Luther was a theologian and a pastor. Calvin was a theologian and a pastor. But Luther probably would have had maybe a little more pastor in him than Calvin. Calvin probably would have had a little more theology in him than Luther, even though they were both obviously very intelligent and influential men. Historians would tell us that the thoughts of Calvin in his works continue to affect social structures, notably in Canada and the United States even today. And as we talk about some of his theological beliefs, you may be able to connect the dots as well and say, yeah, I, I, I can kind of see that in our culture, how his his beliefs, his influences, just like Luther influenced us, how the, the thoughts, the way of functioning in society and that affected um, Western society, notably the USA and Canada, and largely affected those two countries through denominations that grew here that were influenced by him historically. So let's talk about his background. He, he began... Uh, his academic career by studying law. So he was actually primarily a legal scholar. And he converted to Protestantism in 1533. Protestantism in 1533. So he's born in 1509, converts in 1533. Here's what he wrote, quote, God by a sudden conversion subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, end quote. Now, this, this is more than just an interesting collection of words. It lets us in right off the bat on some of his theological understanding of the capacity of the human mind to comprehend God pre-conversion and post-conversion and what's necessary for that change to take place. Let me read it again. God, by a sudden conversion, so notice the source. God's at the beginning of the sentence. 
subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. Now, in some religions, you're taught and then the mind is developed. But in his way of thinking, the mind had to be subdued. Something had to happen in order for his mind even to begin to compute what God had to say. He felt called to reform the church, and he felt that it was the will of God for him to dedicate his life to that. So 1536, he ends up moving to Geneva, Switzerland, a city, and he sets about to turn the city basically into kind of a church. They think, well, that, that's quite the task. Well, not really, because we've already said many times in this course that the church and state were inseparable at the time. So there was no civil government over here and religious government over here. That was the same. So if you had the reins of the government, the city council, for example, in Geneva, you also had the reins of the spiritual life of the people that lived in that area and in the surrounding territories. So he goes there to turn the city into a church, and his desire really throughout his, his entire life was to make that city a model of what reformed Protestantism should look like. He wanted it to be a model city. Now, the way that he got there is interesting. Glenn may have already told you this, but there was a man by the name of William Farrell, who was a bit of a heavy-duty, controversial figure, preaching in Geneva at the time. And uh, Calvin was actually trying to just pass through. He only wanted to spend one night in Geneva as he headed off for more university schooling. And William Farrell convinced him to stay and uh, basically to help with the Reformation movement in Switzerland. So the city council was sympathetic to that, so they appointed him to the post of professor of sacred scripture in their local university, which is interesting again, right? The city council appoints their divinity professors. There's no separation of church and state. This is one and the same. Now, one of the interesting things about Farrell is while he had made some changes and had an impact in Geneva, the way that he operated, and obviously the people that were working with him and just the political realities at the time, he tended to have more of an effect on influencing the political side of the city systems, the way people you know, brought noblemen or people of stature on side. But what Calvin was able to bring that Farrell didn't is a theological backdrop to all of that. He was able to shape the theological life of the city and the local church, which then would have, of course, a lasting influence on the political systems. So this is his book. He wrote several things, but this is the key book that was published in... Uh, Actually, in the, first, the first edition was published the year he showed up in Geneva, 1536. And it was updated and edited and updated and edited. So the final form really came to bear in 1559. So it's almost 20 years of editing and refining his thinking. So key belief. If you were to say to Calvin, hey, Calvin, what is, if I could take everything you believe and kind of summarize it, what's like the, the doctrine that you value the most, 
that you consider to be the doctrine that overarches and oversees and kind of is the key to un, uh, unlocking everything else in your belief system. This is what he would tell you. He would say the absolute sovereignty of God. Absolute sovereignty of God over the weakness of man. So if you look at theological systems, Anabaptists, Roman Catholicism, look at uh, the Lutherans, they would all acknowledge that man is sinful and God is sovereign. But Reformed Calvinism puts this much higher and this much lower. So the, the gap between the two is a greater gap than in any other Christian theological system. Now bear that in mind, because everything else that we're going to talk about tonight, we come to his beliefs, really hinge on that stake that he pounded very deep into the ground that everything else kind of hinged off. Everything else revolved around that notion that God is absolutely sovereign and humanity is very weak. So he rejected, for example, free will. Now, free will is not a biblical term. It's a term from philosophy. The only time in Scripture the terms free and will come together is under the Old Testament sacrificial system when you, you brought a free will offering to the Lord. But that's a different usage. That means that you choose to bring an offering. It's not talking about your bondage of the will or anything like that. But if you want to look at the idea of free will and you pull out your concordance... I remember doing this with a theology class years ago. There was like seven or eight, and I brought in all these concordances, and I said, we're going to do a study on free will. Okay, so I want you to look up all the references. And they're like, Dr. Rock, it's, you can't find it. And I said, you know, surprise, surprise, it's not there, right? So it is a term from, from philosophy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the concept is not in Scripture. That's something you have to wrestle through. But for Luther, he would have denied that. that free will was uh, absolutely not in Scripture, after the fall of man into sin. Because in his mind, if man had a freed will prior to salvation, the absolute sovereignty of God, which he's trying to hold as high as he possibly can, is somewhat diminished. Because then somehow you're playing a role in seeking out God or responding to God or whatever it might be. So if Calvin taught then, and the reformers taught that God predestined all things. So down here, free will? No. Up here, predestination? Yes. He taught that God predestined all things and taught a very, very high view of uh, theistic determinism, that God determines all things including salvation and damnation. So many Calvinists even today will say, oh, we believe in predestination, but we, what they would say is that we believe that God predestines otherwise lost people to eternal life, but the natural trajectory of every, everyone else is to hell because of sin and the fall of Adam and Eve and all that. So that's called singular predestination. But Calvin actually believed in double predestination, that God both 
predestined some to heaven and some to eternal damnation before the world was even created. And we'll get into that in this book as well. In terms of justice, because Calvin was asked all of the questions that Calvinists and people who believe in Reformed theology today are asked. But how can God be fair? It's not a modern question. There's not a question you could ask about Calvinism today that he wasn't asked. They're not, they're not modern questions. They would say, well, how can God be just? Reformed theology's response to that is God's will is the highest justice. God's will is the highest justice. So if he wills it, it is just. And really, in that respect, you can definitely hear echoes from Augustine and from the Apostle Paul in that statement as well. High, high view of God, very low view of man. So that's just a little brief background about his life. He, he did, uh, during, for a period of time, get kicked out of the city, along with William Farrell, for his hardline views on determinism, on predestination. The city council actually voted him out of town, like, get lost. So him and William Farrell, obviously very dejected. This is two years after his arrival in 1538, relocated to Strasbourg. And he lived there for three years. And during that time, he pastored a small church. He later said it was some of the best years of his ministry. Just loved that uh, three-year experience. And maybe part of that is because he met his wife and got married. So he met his wife, uh, had two children, felt that that time was a great joy in his life. Back in Geneva, city council changed, and members of the city council that were put, uh, well, people that were put under the city council were sympathetic to Farrell and Calvin. So in 1541, he's invited back to Geneva and basically spends the rest of his ministry there. The city council is now friendly. He's able to put his reforms into effect. So what are some of the reforms that Calvin brought about in the city of Geneva? Well, there are several, and they are very, very radical, in fact. Some of them are almost shocking from our vantage point, because we know how hard it is to reform, to stand against a, a law or a bill that we don't agree with. But Calvin's reforms were pretty sweeping. So back in Geneva... This is round two now. So we're talking uh, 15, not 18. 1541 and following. Morality is mandated. Biblical morality. Now, it's interesting. Those of you that grew up in church, I know your minds are going to start spinning when I say this. It's interesting that the way we apply biblical morality can easily become, in our way of thinking, biblical morality itself. We can differentiate between pure biblical morality and the application to culture and to life of biblical categories of morality. So, for example, biblical morality meant that Curfews were enforced. It meant no dancing 
Okay? It meant no card games. Just bring, bringing back memories. No Xbox. No, they didn't have those back then. Uh, obviously, it meant some things that are more purely biblical, like um, no drunkenness. Okay, we know that uh, is, is a category of biblical immorality. Uh, and other things along those lines. So the, the city really was policed, I'll tell you how in a moment, by Calvin and his followers and the city council, and morality was enforced. Now, in many respects, that had a great result. Fewer murders, uh, fewer marital breakdowns, fewer abuses, all that kind of stuff. He also developed a catechism. So the Genevan Catechism... Now, a catechism is not new to Calvin. Different church denominations have done those over the years. Oftentimes, they're framed in the forms of questions and answers. But they're basically a handbook on beliefs. So he developed a, a biblical catechism that could be used by teachers to teach people about his understanding of biblical Reformed Christianity. And then a, cons a constatory was established to monitor the morality of the people. Now, a constatory was composed primarily of 12 elders and the ministers from the local church. And they functioned as moral policemen in Geneva, enforcing fasting, curfews, and that kind of thing. What what did they do with nonconformists? Excommunication. So excommunication would take on different forms. It would start off maybe, well, you can't partake in the Eucharist. You're kind of banned from the sacraments. Ultimately through to get out of town or we're going to kill you. As he taught and established his theological framework, the basic justification in Reformed theology or Calvinism at the time for policing these kinds of laws to the nth degree was, again, based in high view of God, low view of man. So Calvin taught this. He said, without God, a person is really no better than an animal. And so if you're going to deny God and act like an animal, then we're going to treat you like one. If your dog bites you, you kill it. So likewise, if a human being is going to deny God's law and act like an animal, then you're not going to be welcome here, minimally, right through to, we'll put you to death. So you can see, regardless of how you react to that emotionally, the consistency of his views. High view of God, low view of man. If you're going to reject God, you're not any better than Fido. So essentially, we're going to treat you like Fido. We're going to treat you like a dog. Hard work was considered dignified and glorified God. We've already talked about that before. That came through in Anabaptism as well. This is where we get the phrase, the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic was connected to preaching 
that was radical at the time in Europe that wasn't coming from Catholic clergymen, it was coming from Protestant clergymen. And that is that you have value, that everything you do, you should try to bring glory to God, you should try to dignify God, whether you're sweeping the streets or you're running the city council. Your work is of value and dignity to God. So because people are encouraged by that, they started working harder and better. And that's where you have the whole idea of the Protestant work ethic, and that's tied to uh, capitalism in the United States, and sort of the, you know, there's opportunities available for you, work hard, all of that, which is now ingrained in culture, and people don't even know where it's sourced, is actually sourced in the Protestant Reformation, which is pretty interesting. So as he puts these laws into effect, and they become part of the culture of Reformed churches, let's just fast forward now 500 years. You still see this. You still see, because Luther wasn't teaching this, Calvin was teaching this, if you walk into a Lutheran church today, generally speaking, they're more loose on matters of personal choice, you walk into a Reformed church, they're tighter on matters of personal choice. And that's not a modern phenomenon. That's going back 500 years, half a millennia, to those basic beliefs that these early founders of those movements put into place. Just a different view of how, how much the church is going to control your specific choices and how you live your life. So when it comes to governing the Genevan church, we'll talk about that a little bit. It's also interesting how that was all put together. So the Genevan church was governed by four different categories of officers. So they had pastors, and pastors were basically responsible for the day-to-day -day care and uh, nourishing of the congregation, which is basically everybody in the city. Uh, elders were men that kind of ruled the church. And those men, I'm not sure if there was more than 12 of them or not, but there was at least 12 because 12 of them also sat on the, how do I spell that? The consistory, yeah. So they sat on the consistory along with, some of the ministers. Then they had teachers and deacons. So in in this isn't this isn't really the case today, but just those of you that are have been to university or have an interest in how that all works, the way that we view education and rankings in universities today is very different than what it would have been like back then. So for example, a bachelor's degree early on was the superior top-of-the-line degree. We have the whole, you know, bachelor, master, doctor, right? So the bachelor is a, a, a consumer of information. The master's student is supposed to be a communicator of information. The doctoral student is supposed to be a creator of information relevant to their field. But that's, that's more of a modern notion. A teacher was a doctor. A doctor was a teacher. So if you were a doctor, what you were actually getting is, in a couple, with a couple extra years of education, a certificate from the city council to be able to teach in their university. That doesn't mean you were. That doesn't mean that you had more education than someone with a bachelor's degree. 
It just meant that you had the status of being a teacher, what we would call a professor today. So a teacher, because you might be thinking, well, don't, don't elders teach? Don't pastors teach? Yeah, they do. But a teacher was someone who had some sort of university training and could teach like the raw theology and doctrine and practice of the belief system that they were a part of. So in Reformed theology, these would be your doctors. And that was a different office or a different role than pastors or elders. And then deacons, of course, would manage the distribution of funds to the poor and the widows and all what we would call social programs in our culture or context today. So as I mentioned, 12 elders and the ministers would form the consistory and they would go around and they would police city morality. So let me talk to you about an extreme example of what that that looked like. Uh, In Spain, there was a physician, and physicians at the time weren't called doctors. We think doctor, physician, physician, doctor. They were physicians. So there was a man down there. He was a physician. You may have heard his name. Michael Servetus. That's a R. Servetus. And he, by virtue of the fact that he was one of the the bishop or archbishop's physicians probably would have been killed a lot earlier in Spain for some of the things he was teaching down there. But because he was connected to the clergy, he was teaching a lot of stuff that was very controversial. And in fact, if you kind of took many of the things that Calvin was teaching in Geneva and many of the things that Servetus was teaching in Spain, it's kind of like the opposite of it. For example, he denied the Trinity, didn't believe that God was triune. It's kind of significant, right? A matter of orthodoxy. However, he heard about John Calvin and started writing to John Calvin. And he actually would send John Calvin drafts of a book he was working on or documents that he was working on. And Calvin would respond to those. Well, before long, he was arrested in Spain and he was tried. He was in prison and he was about to be put to death. But he escaped. And where did he go? Went to Geneva. So he shows up in Geneva thinking that perhaps by virtue of this correspondence he'd had with Calvin that he'd have a a friend there. And we're not sure about this, but some historians believe that Calvin was one of the individuals that had maybe sent some correspondence to the Spanish government encouraging them to put this guy to death for his beliefs. We're not sure about that, but evidently Servetus didn't know that when he shows up in Geneva. So Servetus is obviously teaching things in Geneva that don't square with Reformed Calvinism, so he's arrested. And initially, Calvin wants, uh, Calvin does believe he should be put to death. Again, you know the lower than the animal thing? It's just so different than the way we think today, but you're lower than an animal. He believed that he was guilty of heresy and false teaching to the degree that he should be put to death, but he didn't think it should be like a harsh form of being put to death, like being burned at the stake. But the city council felt this guy should be burned at the stake, so he was burned at the stake, and Calvin didn't stop it. Now, because of that, because that was shocking, there was questions in Europe at the time about, like, Geneva's a city within a state. 
does Geneva even have the authority to put someone to death? All those questions coming from other Protestants, the Roman church, it caused a lot of problems for Calvin. He didn't win any brownie points because of it. And for a long time through Europe, he was just known as the guy that burns Servetus. But that was an extreme example of his willingness to stand up for what he believed to be true. Now, we're not commenting on the appropriateness or not of the action. We're just trying to understand the, historic, the historical dynamics going on at the time. And one other thing that's noteworthy is Calvin, uh, historians tell us, probably in part agreed to having Servetus put to death because if he didn't, the whole reform movement would collapse. Because the, the idea would be if Calvin would let a non-Trinitarian to come into his town and teach whatever he wanted, well, then anybody could come in. So in some ways, the fact that this guy was put to death probably closed the door for other people to influence Calvinism and Reformed theology at the time, which, because of that, from, from this point in time, uh, which is in, which is in uh, 1533, no, shortly thereafter, um, Calvin more or less enjoyed a, a period of... Um, peace, and he was able to stabilize the government. There basically were, were not a whole lot of disputes after that. And a couple more things. By 1555, from 1555 until his death in 1564, so the last nine years of his death, the city by then was very secure under his influence, and as he had hoped, it had become a model city of Protestantism properly lived out in terms of beliefs, in terms of morals, in terms of structure. And it also became a place of refuge for many persecuted Protestants from other European cities or nations. They came, they were influenced, and Calvin's influence just expanded and blossomed because of that. So that's a brief background to... The, the advent of Reformed theology. So really it centers on one guy. So we don't, we're not talking about all different people in all different places. There are some other interesting things that we could talk about, like um, Melanchthon, which would have been uh, Luther's right-hand man, initially was mildly, maybe moderately interested in Calvin's determinism, beliefs in predestination, but began to distance himself from it. Maybe, maybe in part because of biblical reasons, maybe in part because of political pressures, because it wasn't popular. And um, kind of had, by, the, by the time Melanchthon was writing later in life, he basically wouldn't even use the word, even though it's in the Bible. He wouldn't even use the word because he wanted to be distanced from it. So this is an interesting observation, which is going to influence our study of Calvin's Institutes tonight. And that is that out of the three prongs of Protestantism, the average man is likely to appreciate some of this, is likely to appreciate some of this, but is going to struggle with some of this. So Calvin's beliefs are the most controversial. They're the most difficult to swallow. They're the most hard on us. So we just kind of need to take that into consideration as we seek to understand 
Calvin's belief. Do you have any questions about anything up to this point before we spend the rest of our night looking at his belief systems? Any comments or questions you might want to make? Okay. How many of you, apart from Glenn, have uh, read at least a page out of this book? Okay, a couple of you. Okay, so two of you. More than a page? You read the whole thing? Okay. Yeah, okay, good. How about you, Ian? Just late night reading? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's formatted, first of all, different than we would format a book today. So there's, there's chapters. So I'll just kind of give you an idea here. There's basically four parts to it. They're just called books. So there's book one, book two, book three, book four. And each of them is then subdivided into chapters. But in each chapter, then, there's just like number one, and then a paragraph or two, number two, a paragraph or two. And he's just dealing with various theological beliefs under those headings. So I've selected probably a dozen or so. <laughs> I, I didn't select ones that are really any different from Lutheranism or Anabaptist. I tried to select ones that are kind of unique to reform theology or Calvinism so you can kind of see the differences instead of just reviewing things we've already looked at. So let's look at his beliefs. We're going to start with his beliefs on general revelation. So a little background. In Christian theology, one of the things that we believe to be true across the board, regardless of the denomination you're in, is that God has revealed things to us by what we call special revelation. I know it's not a the kind of term that would like grab your attention, special revelation. We use the word special pretty loosely, but that's the word that we use. Special revelation is basically composed of this. It's composed of words coming out of the mouths of prophets of apostles, of angels. Special revelation is also Jesus walking among us, talking to people, revealing himself. So when God reveals himself in a very unambiguous way, which is recorded for us in the word of God, but historically took place apart from the word of God, it took place in the Holy Spirit speaking directly to people or speaking through an animal or Jesus Christ walking among us. We call that in theology special revelation. But then we say God also reveals himself in a different or additional way. And we call that general revelation. And general revelation is less specific. But for example, general revelation is a person looks at a beautiful sunset and or the birth of a baby or something intricate and fascinating in creation and there's something inside of them that is stirred and they suddenly feel very small that's like there's got to be a god may not know his name may not know how many gods there are but there's something that has been revealed to the human through through general revelation and 
In addition to that, there's a lot of talk in theology about how God reveals himself through human consciousness. So if we're made in the image of God, so follow this logic, if we're made in the image of God, whatever that means, at least in part it means that there's something in us that mirrors at least some aspect of God. And if that's true, step two is to conclude that there must be some dimension in my constitution that enables or allows, potentially or actually, for me to find out something about that God whose image I bear. And so when, when, when Calvin was thinking about all of this and asking the question, well, how, how does God, if God is really high and man is really low, how does God actually reveal himself to us? One of the sections under this chapter called Knowing God in Ourselves, it's chapter 3, the heading is, the knowledge of God has been naturally implanted in the human mind. And let me just kind of, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read sections out of this book and then I'm going to make some comments on it and you can ask questions anytime you want. So you've got to follow it. <clears throat> Here, here's what he says. This is point one, number one. It is beyond dispute that some awareness of God exists in the human mind by natural instinct. Track with me? That makes sense, right? Nothing complicated about that. It's just basically what I just said. Since God himself has given everyone some idea of him so that no one can plead ignorance. So now we're going from a statement to implications. He's like, well, there's something in you that has the capacity to understand something about God. Implication? What's the implication? There's no excuse. So where is he going to take this? He writes, he frequently renews and sometimes increases this awareness so that all men, knowing that there is a God and that he is their maker, may be... Notice may, that's a word of potentiality, right? May be convicted in their own conscious, conscience when they do not worship him or give their lives to his service. Now, some theological systems that have a very high view of humanity and maybe a somewhat lesser view of God would start the, the paragraph off as he started it, but maybe end it with, so that means that given the right circumstances, the right parenting, the right teaching, you have the capacity in and of yourself to reach out and grab hold of God. Something like that. And there's lots of theological systems within Christianity that teach that very thing. In fact, most of them do, on some level. But not Reformed theology. Reformed theology has the low view of man and the high view of God. So the, where he ends the statement is, while you're responsible, but it's all God's initiative, so look at the words he uses here that speak of initiative. He, that's God, frequently renews and sometimes increases this awareness. So where's the source of awareness or increased insight from? It's from God. It's not from you uh, getting a good moral education or making a choice. So in Calvinism, it's all grounded in God's sovereignty. So I'll skip down. And he asks a question about primitive tribes remote from civilization. That's a question that people ask today too, right? It's, they're, not, they're not modern questions. And here's what he says. But in fact, there is evidence that there is no tribe so warlike, no race so uncivilized, 
as to be without the conviction that there is a God. Even those which are very little different from animals seem to retain some religious awareness because this universal conviction is firmly in the minds and hearts of all men. Now, don't, don't read that through like the modern notions of discrimination. He's not saying there's some people groups that are closer to apes. He thinks we all are, <laughs> essentially. We're all closer to animals. But you're, more clo you're closer to an animal the farther you are from acknowledging God. You're, you're acting more like a dog. You're acting more like an ape. Because the, the, the God that created you that is part and parcel of even your uh, title being an image bearer is being denied. So you're diminishing your own humanity by not acknowledging God. So on the knowledge of God. And then one more section out of this chapter. He's asking the question of the knowledge of God. Is it suppressed or spoiled inadvertently or deliberately? Again, that's a modern question. It's, if I was teaching a theology class in the seminary on Calvinism, that question would be asked. Someone's hand would go up. It would be asked. And here's what he says, moving down in the, in the chapter. Vanity and pride are always present when men seek for God. Not when they run from, but when they seek God. Vanity and pride are always present when men seek for God. Instead of rising above themselves as they ought to, they measure him, listen to this, by their own worldly folly. And instead of solid investigation, they go away and humor their curiosity with useless guesswork. So they do not think of God in his true character, but imagine him to be like their own random ideas. Again, that, that sounds very similar to a guy. You know, if I'm preaching, I might say, hey, you know what? It's easy to make God in your own image. That's what Calvin was talking about 500 years ago. It's easy to assume that your good works are always motivated by good intentions, but the Bible says they're like filthy rags, even the good you do. Because deep down, apart from God's grace, even the most charitable of people are somehow trying to, well, they could be trying to get attention. They could be trying to earn mercy. They could, be try, they could try to, uh, they might be trying to reduce an internal sense of shame or condemnation. Whatever it might be, deep down, even the charitable things that people do, Calvin taught, are, and it sounds a lot like Isaiah, are grounded in, what does he call it? Pride and vanity. So that's his belief. <clears throat> and he says a whole lot more about it. But that's just a little, little bit on Revelation. So do, does, do you think he's going to then arrive at the conclusion that we have a natural propensity to seek after God and don't need grace? No. He's going to push God even higher. Yeah, so Ajit? So, so... He's accounting for, okay, today the question is, what if you're born in an area where you have a lack of access to the gospel? Mm -hmm. But, so he's saying that you can connect with God because God is revealing himself to you one way or another. So there's no excuse. But what does it mean, how does he account for your knowledge of the Son and your ability your, and salvation through faith in him? Mm -hmm. So first of all, he doesn't say you can. He'd feel more comfortable saying you should. But what you should do, that's an ought word. What we ought to do, 
When you use the word you ought, when you say someone ought to do that, you shouldn't assume that the person being told they ought to do it has the capacity to do it. What you should assume minimally is the person who ought to do it is morally culpable to do it. And so Calvin would, which, which, which seems like we're splitting hairs, but it's actually incredibly, incredibly important for us to understand that difference. Because even in modern Christianity, the notion is, well, if I've been told to do it, I must have the capacity to do it. And reformers would comment, no, that's not where you're supposed to take that thought. The fact that you ought to do it and you can't do it means you must have more grace than you need in any other theological system in order to do it. So he's going to take us in the direction of radical grace, where it gets hard to, to, to hear and to believe is when he gets into like his strong views of predestination and determinism, especially double predestination. Does that make sense? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Well, ask it again if um, it doesn't become uh, clearer as we look at this next section. So let's talk about our perception of God. Oh, no, we already did that. So general revelation, that was the first one. Our perception of God, those kind of tie together. Okay, so let's go to free will. Ooh, this is a fun one. Not especially controversial. By the way, his um, those that would push back hardest against Calvin in the, the 16th century would have probably pushed back the hardest because they felt he was drawing a lot of his categories from philosophy instead of from theology. I think we now understand that there, there, there is a lot that he's teaching that actually does come from biblical texts that are seeking to be understood theologically. But because words like free will are philosophical terms that we import into theology. They're not theological terms. They're philosophical that we import into to try to describe something we see in Scripture. It can seem like you're bouncing back and forth between philosophy and theology. On free will. So this is a section on uh, actually under the category of God the Trinity and his creation. So God has given intellect to the soul of man so that he may discern good from evil and have the light of reason. He's also given will by which choices are made. At creation, man had these gifts to perfection. When reason, intellect, wisdom, and judgment not only ruled his earthly life, but enabled him to reach up to God and eternal joy. So I, you, you've probably heard me talk about the fact that uh, we, if you want to borrow a term from, from philosophy to describe the state of man prior to the fall, Genesis 3, I'm totally comfortable with saying people have a free will. We did have a free will. You're unencumbered at the time. Again, it's not a biblical term, but if it captures the idea that he's basically stated more eloquently here, then so be it. So then we have this. Like, well, why did God give man choice? Why didn't he just lock him down? 
to hear what he says. Then choice was added to control, ap- control the appetites, but the will was always under the authority of reason. Let's think about that for a minute. So choice was added to control appetites, meaning desires. But the will, the will is what leads you forward on the trajectory or path that your life takes. It's the decision-making mechanism. The will was still under the authority of reason. And then he says this. In this moral state, so this is pre-fall, man had free will by which he could choose eternal life. It would not be right to introduce the matter of predestination here because we're looking at man's nature. So what he's basically saying there is, as soon as if you start thinking that about predestination, we'll get to that later, but that's not, predestination is a doctrine about God, it's not a doctrine about us. Will is a doctrine about us. So let's stick to that one. Adam could have remained upright if he had chosen. He fell of his own volition, which is another word for will. It was because his will could have taken him in either direction that he received no firmness of purpose, firmness of purpose, and so he fell so easily. And then this is the part that I've highlighted. He had free choice of good and evil. In his mind, there had been utmost integrity and all the potential for obedience, but he ruined its virtue and destroyed himself. So that's, that's also very insightful to try to understand Calvin. Because not only did Calvin say, well, of course Adam fell into sin and is depraved because of it. Lutherans would be like, yeah, we don't have a problem with that. Anabaptists would be like, yeah, we don't have a problem with that. But Calvin takes it a little bit further and says, well, he actually destroyed himself. And when he, when he speaks of destroyed, he's including the will in that statement. He destroyed his free will. He doesn't have it anymore. Down further, it says, but those who profess to be disciples of Christ and still maintain that man has free will, despite his being lost and overwhelmed in spiritual destruction, labor under a big delusion. So this is where you, you kind of catch a little bit of a glimpse, I think, of his pastoral heart. Because right, right now, what he is not, in fact, doing is trying to pick a theological fight. But what he's saying is, my system is actually superior to help you minister to people. Because if you don't have this low view of man, then you're always going to kind of assume that people can kind of get their act together or make choices as they should make choices. And then you're going to find yourself in a delusion, frustrated and all that kind of stuff, right? So I think it's interesting that Calvin uh, makes that uh, observation early on in his theological development. And then he talks about further, uh, at first, every part of the soul was created for uh, uprighteousness. There was soundness of mind. There was freedom of will to choose good. If anyone complains that it was vulnerable because its power was weak, I have to answer that the honor conferred was enough to take away all excuses. For surely God cannot be restricted to making man so that, the, that he either could or, could or would not sin. Such a nature might be superior, but to argue with God as though, he was, as though he were compelled to give his nature to man is the height of injustice. So, in brief, 
people ask the question, why did, give, why did God give us the freedom to choose in the first place? Because he bestowed his nature upon you. His image upon you. And God has the ability to determine. The difference between you and God is God is hemmed in by his moral perfection, which is built into his character very deeply. We don't have that because we're lesser than God. We're created, not creator. So don't argue with God. God has dispensed an aspect of his nature, if you will, or character upon you, and that's why you have the ability to choose, but you messed it up. And because you messed it up, uh, your, your will is no, no longer free, but, it's, but it, it is in bondage. Yeah, Ian? No. It's all destroyed. So your free will, so the, the effects of sin do not just affect the will. The effects of sin also affect your mental capacity. So you're aware of your own mental capacity. You're not aware of other people's mental capacity. You're just aware of your own, right? And we all have a limit to our mental capacity. And we may think that our mental capacity is really good. But we're all walking around with some severe head trauma, spiritually. And we've just never experienced anything other than that. So we think we're really smart. But Calvin has something to say about the mind, that the intellect itself has been damaged by sin, which is our next category. Thank you very much for the setup, Ian. Appreciate that. I find this part quite interesting because uh, generally what your question raises is generally we, we think about the spiritual impact. We don't think about the physical impact. We know we're going to die, but it physically damaged our bodies. It physically damaged our brains. Things have been damaged. So with regard to the depravity of the will, he says the depravity of the will is only too well known so, since reason, by which man discerns both good and evil, and by which he understands and judges, is a natural gift, it could not be completely destroyed. But because it was weakened and corrupted to some extent, only a shapeless wreck is left. It's pretty hard. So, it's still there but there's just a shapeless wreck that's left. That's how damaged it, it has been. In this sense, we read in John 1, 5, the light shines in darkness, but darkness has not understood it. So it's like, it's there. God's speaking. He's revealing. We're like, I don't get it. Not convinced. Who's the problem with? Is God not clear? The problem's with us. So these words clearly express both aspects. First, that there are still some sparks in man's perverted and degenerate nature which show he is a rational animal. There's still something there. He differs from the lower orders because he possesses intelligence, but the light of it is enveloped in dark clouds so that it cannot shine out effectively. In the same way, because the will is inseparable from man's nature, it did not perish but became so bound by depraved lusts as to be incapable of worthy desires. 
But covenants say you don't have a will because it's in bondage. It's not free. So think about the word free. Really, really, it's a word we should just strike from our vocabulary. I don't care if you're an Anabaptist or Lutheran. Like, just think about it. Are, do, you, do you really believe, if you're a Christian, you believe in sin. Do you think any, any human being really has a free will? Free is a, a pretty long and expansive word. Like, does anybody believe that you actually have a totally unencumbered will? Like, I'm aware of that just from my own experience that I don't have an unencumbered will. I don't even have to read the Bible to know that about myself. Because I can point to example after example after example after example where I've wanted to do right and I've chosen to do wrong. Like, multiple examples of that. And, and I'm on the other side of conversion. <laughs> so, my will is still corrupted on some level. And even more corrupted prior to the grace of regeneration in Christ. Here's what he goes on to say. Skipping down. A longing to investigate the truth has been implanted in the human mind. So we're going to ask the questions. We may even ask the right questions at times. An unbeliever may even ask the right question. Is there a God? If so, prove him, prove him to me. And think about that question. Calvin would say, a reformer would say, a person that says, if there's a God prove them to me, is demonstrating both the fact that they're made in the image of God and demonstrating the fact that they're, in fact, fallen. The fact they've asked the question indicates there's that spark that's there, right? They're interested in the question of God. But prove them to me demonstrates depravity because it assumes that I have the capacity to even comprehend God. And, in fact, when I can't prove God, to you, or you can't prove God to me, the fault does not lie with God, it lies with me. And if we had an unencumbered mind, and we could properly understand truth, we would arrive at the conclusion, oh, the reason why I can't comprehend God, oh, that's actually my fault. But humanity double damns itself when the question remains unanswered, and what's the accusation? Well, it's God's fault. No, the fault is not with God. This, by the way, has implications for the way you do apologetics. So, Reformed theology has a system of apologetics called presuppositionalism. And uh, presupp... It's right up here. Pre... And then there's rational... Evidentialism. So, presuppositionalism, the root is presuppose. Presuppositionalism is a reformed approach to apologetics, which says, yeah, we're going to try to answer the questions and break down the barriers and present the truth and all that kind of stuff. But until God is accepted as a presupposition, you cannot know truth. And you will not be able to comprehend any of our arguments. Now, because of the, the West... The culture that we're in is a, emphasizes the mind, evidence, science. Most Christians default into this because it's more palatable in a Western culture. Because we, we've actually bought the lie that unless you can prove it to me in a science lab, it's not true. Most of us actually think that, even though we're too ashamed in the context of this to admit it. So 
when it comes to our apologetics, this is the most popular kind of ap apologetics today. Let's lay out all the evidence. Let's show them all the facts. Let's take them to the empty tomb. Let's prove to them that the Bible hasn't been altered, on and on and on, right? Let's use the cosmological argument, all these arguments. Presuppositionalisms use those, presuppositionalists use those, but they would say, this comes well after this. So if I, can, if I can say to you, okay, you're not a believer, but will you accept God as a presupposition? You're like, I will. Okay, it doesn't mean you're a believer now, but you've accepted God as a presupposition. Then we can get into this, and the whole picture will eventually make sense. It's like you're plugging in pieces of the puzzle, and eventually the puzzle's complete. But if, I, if you say, no, I will not accept the existence of God, and you want to start here, then what you're in fact doing, if you think about it, you're starting here to try to prove this. And that's always going to be inadequate. Presuppositionalism starts here to prove this and this. So if you try to argue from the lesser to the greater, if you try to argue from my world, my experience, my mind that there is a God, there's a huge problem with that. I'm not God. I'm created. I'm fallen. You can never use me to discover God. You have to start with the presupposition that there is God, and then you will understand yourself, and you will understand more of God. So the question is, where is your starting point going to be? Where is your starting point going to be? A little bit more. This is under the heading of uh, the corruption of the intellect. A longing to investigate truth, we've talked about that, has been planted in the human mind. However, however, this love of truth fades out before it reaches the goal and then falls away into vanity. Because the human mind is unable, through obtuseness, to follow the right line of inquiry, after various attempts and stumbling from time to time, like a person groping in the dark, it eventually gets utterly confused. This just proves how unfit the mind is to search for the truth to find it. That's key. That's very key. It labors under another serious defect, and that it often fails to discern what sort of knowledge it should try to acquire. So, influenced by mere curiosity, it tortures itself with unnecessary and useless discussion either not referring at all to essential matters or giving them only a superficial and contemptuous glance. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot of neat words there, but the basic idea is that you don't even have the capacity to ask all the right questions and then follow them through to their conclusion. You don't even know what road to take to get to your answer. So all of these things become boundaries and barriers to you, your ability to comprehend God. So again, can you see it even clearer? Calvinist, very high view of God, very low view, very pathetic view, very pessimistic view of humanity apart from Christ. Not the same with all theological systems, but it is true of Calvinism. <coughs> Next category, repentance. How do you think a Anabaptist 
just kind of connect the dots. You can just totally guess. How do you think an Anabaptist would describe repentance? Very concerned about Christian living, right? So what would repentance look like in the mind of an Anabaptist? Any thoughts? Okay. Change behavior. Okay. Change behavior. Yeah. You see, instead of walking towards the world, you walk towards God, and God will help you essentially convert and change your ways. Okay. Yeah. Anybody else want to add to that? Heartfelt sorrow, genuine sorrow for your sin. So there's going to be something that's observable, that's changed in your life in terms of the way you act, and it's going to be connected to this thing. Right? Now, uh, Calvin wants to see all of that, but he's now going couple layers down and asking questions about where, where does that capacity come from? What actually spurns it on? What, is it reasonable to expect for a person to fully repent or partially repent? Like, What does that actually look like? So we're going to talk about this. So he talks about regeneration by faith, <coughs> repentance. It's a heading actually. It's regeneration by faith, repentance. He writes, we have been discussing how faith possesses Christ and enables us to enjoy his blessing. This is under a, a totally different chapter called Faith and Repentance. The subject would be incomplete if we did not show what can result from it. The message of the gospel is about repentance and forgiveness of sins. If these are omitted, any discussion about faith will be useless. Just tying them really tight. The gospel does involve repentance and forgiveness. Since Christ gives us free reconciliation and newness of life, which we grasp by faith, it would be helpful to look at both. The shortest jump is from faith to repentance. If repentance is understood properly, it will be clear that a man is justified freely by faith alone. But true holiness of life is also essential. This is a great line. Repentance not only follows faith, but it is produced by it. Now that's, that's, that's an interesting statement because some theological systems would be more comfortable putting the repentance on your lap and faith on your lap. So God, God has come your way with grace and then you of your own effort reach out and you exercise something called faith or repentance. Now Luther or Calvin sees those two as being spurned on by the other and he sees them as being indisputable. But he goes on to say pardon and forgiveness are offered by the preaching of the gospel in order that the sinner freed from Satan's power and the bondage of sin may move into God's kingdom. But we may be sure that no one can understand the gospel of grace without leaving the errors of his old life and taking the right path. His whole aim must be to practice repentance. Those who think that repentance precedes faith instead of flowing from it or being produced by it, like fruit by the tree, have never understood what it is all about. So in faith, 
some of you may have been raised in traditions like I was for a part of my life where you didn't talk a lot about repentance because that's a human thing and we don't want to talk about human contributions to salvation. So you just get faith and then at some point you repent. Calvin ties them together. But both of them are wrought in a person's life by God's grace. So you're conscious of it. You're acting upon it. But they are tied together. Um, he goes on to say, when we attribute the origin of repentance to faith, we're not suggesting there's a time gap between them. By the way, whenever we talk about the order of salvation, you've probably all heard that if you've taken theology at all. The order of salvation. You draw a line and you take the, all these different words, justification, sanctification, glorification, calling, election, union with Christ, adoption, predestination, conversion, and you try to order them right on a line. Well, obviously, glorification is at the end of the line. That's a no-brainer. And sanctification is before that. But all of this other stuff, there's debate as to you know, what's the order. The problem with ordering them on a line is you can think of them as time-related. So this took place, then 10 minutes later this did, or five seconds later. So when you, in good theology, when we get into those ones that are all kind of tight at the, t let's say, the moment of, of conversion, we might order them to try to understand their logical sequence, but we're not ordering them, suggesting there's a gap of time between them. Does that make sense? Right? So you say, well, as a person, so someone was a, uh, I was reading a doctrinal statement, and I, I was talking to some pastors, and it suggested that, um, I'm trying to think now, repentance, uh, how much is that? I'm going to talk to you about it. What did it say? Repentance and faith um, come at the same time as regeneration. Okay, regeneration. Yeah, repentance and faith come at the same, same time as regeneration. And I don't like that. So my theological system says logically regeneration comes before repentance and faith. Because until my dead spirit, Ephesians 2, is made alive in Christ, then how can there be faith or repentance? Because I'm dead. I'm not injured. I'm not critically ill. I'm spiritually dead. So logically you would want to take regeneration and put it before, if you're drawing a line, repentance and faith. So he, we're not talking about regeneration here, but it's just interesting that he's bringing that out. We're not suggesting a gap of time. We are merely trying to show that a man cannot honestly say he knows about repentance unless he knows he belongs to God. But no one really is convinced he is of God until he's accepted his offer of love. This will become clearer as we go along. Some people get it wrong, seeing that many submit to God because their consciences are afraid or ready to obey him before they know him or anything about his love. This is initial fear, which some writers commend because they think it's almost as good as true and genuine obedience. But we are not thinking here about the various ways in which Christ draws us to himself or prepares us to think about piety. I just want to say that no righteousness can be found where the spirit is not in control. Does that kind of make sense to you guys? we, we uh, wrestle with the question, okay, if I, so if someone says, 
well, faith comes after regeneration. And you're like, oh, just a second. I remember thinking about it before. Like, I remember maybe even believing. I remember even getting to a point where I accepted it to be factual. So I think I was contributing something. So we, we evaluate. Well, the, the, the temptation is to come up with our theological system out of our experience. So we're thinking back, well, how did it work for me? I remember my mind was working. I was choosing. I was choosing, so my, I must have a will. And I, I don't remember anybody forcing me, so I wasn't a robot. I mean, I must have been free. And Calvin's aware of all those dynamics in the human heart and mind as the gospel's being presented. You're sitting in church week after week hearing it, or someone's preaching the gospel to you time and time. He's not, he's not saying we're robots or anything like that. He's just saying when the spiritual spark is ignited by God, that's when faith and repentance is possible. Until that spiritual spark is ignited, it's not even possible. So this is, again, focusing on salvation as being wrought by God, not by humanity. There's an old, there's a, there's a series of statements, I won't even remember half of them, but it's, I'll probably get them all out of order, but there's um, something like God sought it, Jesus bought it, the prophets taught it, the spirit wrought it, the missionaries brought it, and I've got it. There's something. There's a couple more in there, right? I think there's a couple more in there, but uh, it just kind of that just kind of comes to mind. It's 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 the it's God kind of doing all of that stuff for us, and you can read more. Uh, so, by the word repentance, then I mean new birth. Its sole aim is to form us into the image of God, which was spoiled and destroyed by Adam's sin. That's really what repentance is. If you're like confused about what the end goal is. Well, it's to be more like Jesus, really. To get back to where it should have been before sin happened. That takes away the confusion. The children of God are delivered from bondage of sin by new birth. This does not mean complete freedom and absence of temptation. A ceaseless battle goes on to exercise the saints and help them to understand their weakness. There is still a spring of evil in every born-again man, which gives rise to evil desires and actions. Wrong appetites still flourish. And even though resisted, incite us to lust, greed, ambition, and other uh, vices. But then we read that God purifies his church to make us holy and blameless, and he promises this cleansing by means of baptism, and he carries it out in, in his elect, so forth and so on. So that's on repentance. Let's see what he thinks about justification. This is not going to be super new. So justification by faith. Here's where he's going to differ a little bit in terms of the order. The order of justification is set out like this. First, God, in his freely given goodness, is pleased to embrace the sinner in his wretchedness because he sees him entirely devoid of good works. Now, I'll just jump ahead here. This is really important. So you know God is outside of time, right? But God created time. So we don't even know how to think without the advantage of time because even our minds think sequentially. We form thoughts within this thing called time. So this illustration is a little 
hard to comprehend, but let's just say here's God and the world has not yet been made. Now, again, not yet's a time word, so I'm using time words because that's all I know. But the world's not yet been made. And then God looks down the tunnel of time <laughs> and he sees you. And he evaluates you. You're not, you haven't been created yet, but he's looking down the tunnel of time and he sees you and he's like, given the right circumstances, that person will believe. So based upon that, he elects you or predestines you to salvation. Okay, that's one view. That is not Calvin's view. The reason why Calvin reacts very strongly to that is if God's sovereignty is dependent, and if you don't like that word, then replace it, influenced by, manipulated by, massaged by, whatever word you want to pick. Anything about you that is good, any goodness or potential or thing he values in you, then you cannot logically say God is absolutely sovereign. Because his sovereignty then is dependent, even if it's in a microscopic way, upon you. And therefore, you're bringing something to the table in his choice of you for salvation. But keep that in mind. And here's what he's going to say now. Entirely devoid of good works. The cause of this kindness lies in, lies in God alone. So why is God kind? Why does God save anybody? Why isn't God alone? When God influences the sinner by an awareness of his goodness making him distrust his own works and cast himself totally upon God's mercy for salvation. So God reveals his goodness to us to make us aware of the fact that he isn't good. So when God reveals grace or love or mercy, the point of that is supposed to be to help us to see that we are not any of those things by nature apart from God. This is the nature of faith by which the sinner obtains salvation and becomes aware that he has been reconciled by God. He knows that by Christ's intercession, he has obtained pardon for sin and is justified. Finally, he realizes that, although he has been renewed by God's spirit, he must not look to his own efforts, but solely to the righteousness treasured up for him in Christ. Well, who is he speaking, obviously, against there? The treasure of merit, right? Roman Catholic Church. Um, so justification, there's lots of stuff here. Point being where he adds to the discussion is not to disagree with Luther or the Anabaptist of justification by grace through faith alone, but maybe he adds the discussion by saying that this is how it works. God just looks down and he elects you. You bring zero. So that the question of fairness is not even part of the conversation anymore in Calvinism. It's not even part of the conversation. Because even fairness implies some sort of equal opportunity or 
something that's redeemable in you, none of us, according to Calvinism, are redeemable. We're not even really worth redeeming. So if there's a billion of us and God picks three, the only thing in our mind should be grace, not why not the rest. And as soon as you ask why not the rest, then you've diminished the sovereignty of God and by extension diminished grace. That's, that's Calvinism in its purest form. Not every Calvinist believes in that, but that's Calvinism in its purest form. Any questions about that? We're going to look at uh, prayer next and then hit the doctrine of election a little bit more. So if he, if he believes that you are not just solely elected and that is God's sovereignty, then does he believe that you have to answer for your sin when you're on the other side? Yes. But if you have no control over it, if you actually have no will or no free will, then you're accounting for things that aren't really your fault, no? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so as soon as you ask questions like fault or accounting for, you're automatically elevating God's sovereignty just by asking the question. And the higher you elevate God's sovereignty, by definition, the lower you are. So the, the fault still lies in you and just in asking the question. But the more up close and personal answer to that question is because you still got revelation. If you're in some tribe out in the middle of Nowheresville, you may not have got special revelation, but you got lots of general revelation. And you are responsible to respond to that. Even though when we're talking with the Constitution of Man, we know you can't. You're still responsible to respond to that. And if you don't respond to that, then you're kind of like doubly damning yourself because you're, you're bringing to, to everyone's attention, including your own, what the Bible actually says about you. Now, this is why Calvin liked to study the Old Testament. Because oftentimes we, we take the doctrine of election or predestination when we're talking about it, we only look at New Testament scriptures. And because the New Testament is very didactic, we're trying to like piece together propositions and how they all fit together. And, but the Old Testament is largely narrative. And what's interesting in the Old Testament is we see in narrative form what is taught in the New Testament. So even those that don't like the doctrine of predestination or election, they, it's still pretty hard to not see because it's very clearly demonstrated that God chose Israel to the exclusion of all others. It's very obvious. It's like the whole book after book of that. The alien could come and participate in covenant blessings. And there were righteous Gentiles sprinkled through the Old Testament. They're all used as a prefigurement of God's desire to reach beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, right? But the Canaanites, you all read about the Canaanite genocide. They're just hanging out and worshiping their gods and putting their babies on altars and burning them and all that kind of stuff. Nobody goes in and does any pre-evangelism or hands out Bibles or gives them a few weeks to respond, right? There's none of that. They just when they're all wiped out. And they're then just, they, they become pictures of those that are opposed to God. 
So all people, of course, by nature, are in that same category. And none deserve grace in Calvinism, but God chooses some. So the emphasis is upon his sovereign grace and not asking the question, why didn't the next guy get some too? To the question, why, which is the next question, let me make a couple comments. But before I make any comments, let me just say this straight up. And the, and the purest, the purest answer is for the sake of his glory and grace, because of his sovereign will. I don't know why. There's something about God I, I don't have access to. And, it, and when I, if I submit, I need to be okay with that, even though there may be some resistance in me to be okay with that, right? But uh, I find it interesting and encouraging that when I read, like, let's say, the New Testament, we'll go to Ephesians 1. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in accordance with the purpose of his will. Okay, that's a statement. What's the context? The context is in a worshipful prayer. So, Paul reminds the Ephesians of that, but how is he using it? He's using it to increase their worship. So think about this. Let's say I come to, well, to you, and you've been saved for a year, but you didn't know that yet. You know that God's been gracious and merciful, and you're like kind of reveling in it. Maybe, maybe it's starting to wear off a little bit, and you're maybe starting to sit on your own laurels, you're not maybe responding quite in the same way, and then I come up to you and say, hey, I, my name's Paul, and I just want to tell you a little more about God. You know that salvation you got there a year ago? Let me, just, let me give you a little more. Did you know that God chose you before the creation of the world for the purpose of his glory and grace? Are you kidding me? Boom. Worship is lit up. Right? Appreciation increases. That's how in virtually every context in the New Testament, this discussion even comes up to in some way increase our worship of God. It's not to form new denominations. It's not to stop evangelizing. It's not to get angry at God. It's, it's just not, that's just not, those aren't the responses that are kind of laid out for us in any of those texts as proper responses. It's all to put them yet one notch higher in our mind. Because the human, human nature, we're still corrupted, right? Even as believers. We're still kind of trying to bring him down a little bit. Kind of make, make him like us a little bit. Tame God a little bit. So when we sin, what are we doing? We're taming, trying to tame God. We're denying the goodness of God or the sovereignty of God or the grace of God. Or we're taking advantage of those things, which is the same thing. So in worship, we talk about vertical worship. The more vertical it is, you're, you're exalting God. And the doctrine of election and predestination actually helps greatly to increase your worship. So you can be a total jerk and be a Calvinist. But I think potentially the Calvinist has a greater opportunity to worship than the non-Calvinist does. By virtue of the fact that by, in their theological grid, God is actually higher and they are lower. So now for the first time tonight, I've actually kind of let you in the fact that I'm a bit of a Calvinist. <laughs> I don't agree with everything Calvin said, but the, the, in broad strokes, I, I do. Yeah. So. so here's what he says. May, you may well ask, if God already knows our difficulties and what is best for us, we need to plead with him in prayer. This is on a doctrine of prayer. Actually, let me go back. 
actually really enjoyed this because I preached a sermon series for those of you that are in our church called Manifest, and it was on the Lord's Prayer. And the key idea, which I've just found so helpful for me, because I was taught about the necessity of praying since I was very young. But I don't always feel like it. And the key kind of has helped me to move forward is this idea that fundamentally prayer is putting ourselves in a place where God manifests his presence to us. And who doesn't want more of that? So Calvin, when I was reading this, I thought, hey, he's kind of, he's basically saying the same thing. And I'd never, I don't think I've ever read this before. I'm not, maybe I did years ago, I'm not really sure. But he says, prayer, the chief exercise of faith by which we receive God's daily benefits. Number one, we've already seen how man is completely devoid of good in himself and without any means of gaining his own salvation. If he wants help in that situation, he has to go outside himself and find it elsewhere. We've explained how the Lord lovingly and spontaneously manifests himself in Christ. And in him offers us happiness for misery and plenty for need. He opens up the treasures of heaven to us so that we can turn in joyful faith to his beloved son, depend on him, and rest in him, and cling to him in full assurance. So that's all kind of stuff we'd want, right? So how do I get myself some of that? Prayer. Prayer enables us to explore the riches which are treasured up for us in our Heavenly Father. There is real contact between God and men when they enter the upper sanctuary, appear before him, and claim his promises. We learn by experience that what we believed merely on the authority of his word is true. That's a fascinating statement. So in prayer, we learn what we, what we believe is true from this, that it actually is true. I find that... I'm not sure I've ever heard that put that way before. But I think that's a pretty fascinating thing to mull over. And it affects the way you pray. So I believe it. I want to experience it. How do I do that, Lord? You pray. And prayer enables me to experience what I believe to be true. Down further, he says, well, let me read two more sentences out of that one. There is nothing that we can expect from the Lord for which we are not also told to pray. So that's like the opposite. Prayer digs up the treasures which the gospel reveals to the eye of faith. i got to give you one more. The need for prayer and its usefulness cannot be emphasized too much. And then in the next paragraph, so moving on to the next section here, you may well ask why if God knows our difficulties and what's best for us that we need to plead with him in prayer. You ever ask that? It's a good question. Especially if, you're, if you have a really high view of God's sovereignty like Calvin did. Why would, why would you even need to talk to him then? He's got it all figured out. Right? Well, if God knows the beginning and the end, he's just totally in control, why would he even have a conversation with him? Calvin's asking the question for us. We don't even have to ask him. It is as if he were asleep and had to be woken up by the sound of our voices. This argument ignores the reason the Lord taught us to pray. It is not for his sake, but ours. He wants us rightly to give due honor to his name by acknowledging that everything comes from him. But even in this, the benefit is ours.
And then he goes into some ways of praying, like how you, uh, different rules he calls it. Here's one. The third rule of prayer is that the one who comes into God's presence must pray, to pray, must rid of all boasting and self-opinionated ideas. I don't totally agree with that because I think in part prayer reveals those things to us. So it's kind of hard to come to prayer already having your act together. <laughs> I find I'm kind of get, barely getting it together when I'm done praying. But it, as certainly he's emphasizing the um, like a humble approach. So that's on prayer. Very helpful. Let's go to election. So eternal election by which God has predestined some to salvation, others to destruction. So this is double predestination, as I mentioned. It is the most controversial aspect in all of Calvinism. But just like you can be an Anabaptist and not agree with every little aspect of it, you can also be a Lutheran and not agree with every aspect of Luther. There's different kinds of Calvinists as well. So election is... It's pre-creation in Calvinism. Pre-creation, and it is not looking down the tunnel of time. It's not done because of something God sees in you as potential or anything like that. Not in Calvinism. So if we suggest that salvation is offered to some and not others simply to suit God's pleasure, enormous question marks arise. These questions are unanswerable unless we hold correct views on election and predestination. This is a puzzling subject to many because it's hard to square the thought of some men being predestined to salvation and others to destruction. I hope to show that they are needlessly confused. In the very complexity of this matter, we can discern the outworking of the doctrine and its happy outcome. We will never be convinced, as we ought, that our salvation flows from God's free mercy until we understand eternal election. God's grace is illustrated by the fact that he does not give away salvation indiscriminately, but gives it to some and denies it to others. Ignorance of this great truth distracts from God's glory and prevents true humility. So right there, he's he's trying to push God higher and he's trying to push us down. Paul clearly states that only when salvation is attributed to the undeserved election that we can know God saves whom he wills of his own good pleasure. He talks about um, the Father giving us to deliver us from fear and make us invincible in the dangers and battles of life. He promises safety to all whom the Father has taken into his keeping, John 10, 28-29. I'm just kind of skipping and jumping through some of this. First, When we delve into the question of predestination, we must remember that we are probing the depths of divine wisdom, which I already kind of told you about, right? We're kind of asking questions that we're not going to fully understand them. And if we dash ahead too boldly, then instead of satisfying their curiosity, they will enter a maze with no exit. It is not right that men should pry into things which the Lord has chosen to conceal in himself or gaze at the glorious eternal wisdom which he wants us to worship, not understand. We're, we're creatures. I'll just make this comment. This is true of all of the Bible study. We're, 
if you have a curious mind, you're going to want to know the answer to fundamental questions, secondary questions, and then when you get through those, you're going to want to start asking questions that maybe should never have been asked. And I see this in seasoned believers. I, I see it when I preach. I'm like preaching away and preaching like core stuff. And the new believers are like leaning in because this is new for them. But the other people are just, you know, give me something new. Then you start getting into some secondary issues and you get it, you know, more people are kind of leaning in. And then you get out into this minutia. And that's when the Christians have been saved for like decades. Then they lean in. And those are the comments they want to talk about after the service. Because like, well, I've heard everything else before. But you made a comment about like the left earlobe on the beast in Daniel. And I, you know, I have an opinion on that. Let's talk about that. And, um, it's almost like the basic stuff becomes kind of boring. So we get all bogged down in things that, so we have systematic theology, we have biblical theology, and we just call that speculative theology. And, and you have to be careful about that. That It's okay to say, it's okay to say, well, I don't know because I haven't studied it yet, but I know it's there. But it's also okay to say, I don't know because God has never revealed that to us. He hasn't revealed it to us. So what I find really helpful, I had a professor give this illustration to us years ago and he just I don't remember what he called it I think it might have been called the line that's what I've always called it the line this is God right so above the line is everything God knows how vast is that it's infinite so that means up here here here's our little planet here's you and I how Again, how much of infinite, I know it doesn't make sense, but we'll use it anyway. How much of God's infinite knowledge do we know? A couple little, couple little lines. You know, he's given us a little bit. Here's some of it. Given us a little bit. And for our little minds, this collectively is a lot for us to comprehend, right? Like, trying to understand just the Bible. There's a lot there. But human nature is, oh, I want to know more. I want to know stuff that's above the line. And here's what God says. Below the line, I elect. But why? That's above the line. Who? That's above the line. So when we have these kind of conversations, again, regardless of your theological system, you, you need to be okay with saying, well, that, that we don't know yet. Just don't know. That's above the line. And then, well, I'm going to ask Jesus in heaven. Well, maybe you will, but maybe you won't care. Because I, I have the sneaky suspicion that the things that trouble me now, I'm not going to be all that concerned with up then. I'm just going to be fascinated with who he is and the full manifestation of his glory to me for all of eternity. Think about it. If God is sufficient to not bore me forever and ever and ever and ever then he must be pretty awesome and I'm probably not going to be asking a lot of the questions we're asking tonight but maybe some of us will be I don't know how do I know moving along some people urge that the subject of predestination should rarely if ever be mentioned and tell us to avoid any discussion of it like the plague I didn't even know that like the plague was a statement they would make back then, but evidently they did. 
Um, so that sounded kind of modern, but I love the fact that 500 years ago he's asking the same questions we're asking. Why would you approach the subject? Don't even talk about it. So he goes on to say, although they are right in saying that such deep things should be treated with moderation, the natural mind is going to raise questions. To hold a balanced view, we must learn, turn to God's word, and there we shall find true understanding. Scripture is the Holy Spirit school where everything we need to know is taught and where nothing is taught that is unnecessary. It would be quite wrong to keep believers from the scriptural doctrine of predestination. It would deprive them of God's blessing and scorn his spirit. The Christian should be open to everything that God has spoken and equally desist from questioning things he does not choose to reveal. Um, Moses states the distinction. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Deuteronomy 29.29 So, if it's in the Bible, we probably should think about it a little bit. Scripture clearly proves that God, by his eternal and unchanging will, determined once and for all those whom he would one day admit to salvation and those whom he would consign to destruction. His decision about the elect is based on his free mercy and no reference to human deserving. Equally, those whom he dooms to destruction are shut off from eternal life by his perfect but incomprehensible judgment. With reference to the elect, God's call and justification are proof of election which will be completed in glory. The unbeliever believers are cut off from the knowledge of his name and sanctification of his spirit, a preview of their coming judgment. I shall not, I shall not bother to refute some of the stupid ideas men have raised to overthrow predestination, but deal only with genuine queries. I didn't know Calvin used words like that. All right, so scriptural proof. Number one. Many people deny all the points I've made, especially the free and undeserved election of believers, but it's irrefutable. Down further. Because God chooses some and rejects others, they argue with him. But if the facts are true, what's the point of quarreling with God? Down further. Do they expect the lower animals to protest to God about the in injustice of inferiority? Paul states that we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1-2. Elsewhere, he exhorts the Colossians to give thanks that they've been made fit to share in the inheritance of the saints. Colossians 1, 2. If election precedes the divine grace which makes us fit for immortal life, what does God see in us to persuade him to elect us? Another passage makes it even clearer. In love, he, he predestined us to be adopted through his son, Jesus Christ. In accordance. You're like, well, why? In accordance with his pleasure and will. Give me more. That's all you're getting. A couple more comments. If you say God could foresee who would be holy and therefore elected them, you invert Paul's order. Okay, so that's the tunnel of time really that I was talking about. So he may, we may safely infer that if he elected us to make us holy, he did not elect us because he saw we would be holy. The two things are obviously contradictory, i.e., that saints owe their holiness to election, but can attain election by means of works. That's a problem with the tunnel of time. Who was ever given to God that God would repay him? Quotes uh, Romans 11.35. Nobody has. So then um, the question of how do I have proof? The proof, what proof have I of election? The proof is in the call. And 
The teaching is clear of us a little further. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So that verse is normally not used to buttress the doctrine of eternal assurance, but it actually implicitly contains that truth. Read it again. You, you all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We all get it. For whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Not not perish, but maybe has it, maybe doesn't, or we're not sure about it for a long time. No, he has it. So everybody knows John 3.16. It's actually the, probably one of the greatest verses in Scripture to lead the believer to a doctrine of assurance. And then assurance spurs us on to pray. Another couple comments. When anxiety may arise to our future status, so am I in or am I not in? As Paul teaches... Those called are previously elected. So our Savior says that many are called, but few chosen. Paul indeed warns many against false confidence when he says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. And again, but they are broken off because of their unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant. Do not be afraid, or but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. To sum up, we learn through experience that calling and faith are not much use without perseverance. So perseverance proves the authenticity of your call. However, in Reformed theology, perseverance of the saints is guaranteed by the sovereign will of God. God will not elect and decree someone to be justified that he has no uh, intention of keeping secure. So when you say make yourself miserable, like having just going through difficulties, you mean? Yeah, you can be so uh, uh, under the cloud of doubt that you just find yourself every day slogging along. Am I safe or not? Mm -hmm. Completely oblivious to the notion that you have persevered for so long. Oh, certainly there will be people who think they can lose their salvation that nev will never lose it. And maybe because they've been taught that or they haven't kind of arrived at a, a place in their life where they're just so resting on Christ and so satisfied in him and so willing to attribute it all to him that they just know. So certainly, it's not like only people who believe in eternal assurance will get there. There's many that won't believe in it that will get there. Likewise, there are many that believe in it that won't get there because they're not truly born again. They might be bought into a particular theological system, but they've never actually been regenerated. And I'll tell you how you know who they are. They sin so that grace might abound. So we're like, I, one saved, always saved. I'm content to sin because I know where I'm going. Really? Like your assurance is in the toilet. That, Nancy? What about deathbed conversion? Well, deathbed, death cross, thief on the cross, converted, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Which, by the way, strikes out soul sleep doctrine. 
use that with your JW friends. Um, it strikes out baptismal regeneration because he had no time to get baptized. His profession was sufficient to save him and closed his eyes in death, opened his eyes in paradise. So not a lot of time for sanctification, right? <coughs> Probably not a lot of jewels in his crown, but the words of Jesus make it clear he's a genuine believer who will be in paradise. So it can happen. It did, yeah. So it must. Well, I think we fall quite regularly. Um, falling and falling away are different. If someone persists in apostasy, then they are by definition not a believer. So you can't not believe but actually be saved. It's not like, well, I'm an unbeliever, but I'm a lot because I'm going to heaven, but I totally don't believe in it at all. No, it's, that doesn't work. So true, true saving faith will be manifested in genuine persevering belief. But you're going to have times you're up and down, you're up and down. And there's a lot of reasons why people can... Uh, there's a lot of reasons why people might not appreciate eternal assurance. Notice I prefer eternal assurance and security because I'm less concerned about God. That's God's security. That's an above-the-line thing. I'm more concerned about assurance. That's more of like a how-do-I-know question. Assurance is a me question. Security is a God question. I can't answer the God question. I don't have God's list. But I'm concerned about assurance. So how do I know if I'm... How does my assurance increase? So I remember when I was first saved, I used to still think I was going to hell for a long time. I come home for lunch. My mom wasn't there. I'm like, Jesus came back and left me behind. <laughs> I call my grandma. I knew he wouldn't leave her behind. And if she didn't answer, then I'd be terrified. So it took a while for me to get to a point where I was sure. But assurance is based upon you know, clear, clear doctrine. It's based upon walking with the Lord and knowing him in a supra-rational way. It doesn't exclude the mind, but it's above and beyond it. And the affirmation of God's people as they, they testify, I see things in you that I know didn't come from you, they come from God. Those are means of assurance, and they grow in, over time, right? But if you're purely looking at the doctrine, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. He who began, it's in him, the work in you will, not might, not may, carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. But then there are warnings to those who think they can mess with God. Lots of apostasy passages in Hebrews and other places that take heed, call to persevere. But perseverance is part of, of sanctification, so that's synergistic. That's you and God working together. So God's giving resources, speaking truth, and you're responding. You're responding, and that increases your sanctification. Justification, that's monergistic. That's just God. <laughs> sanctification is synergistic. It's you living a life of obedience. So I believe you can and should get to a point in your life where you know you're going to heaven. There's no question about that. But never use that 
as an excuse to persist in sin because that then may become evidence that you're not truly regenerate. So it's really between each individual and God. There's nobody else who can sort of look in and make some kind of assessment. Well, like I said earlier, we, we, live our, we live our lives in a community of faith. And just as we affirm spiritual giftedness in others, okay, you've been edifying me. That means you have the gift of. So we can look for spiritual fruit. Because then the Bible flips it around. It, it, it asks the question, by your fruits you shall know them. So that's all about, well, how do I know who else is saved? Well, I look for spiritual fruit. I can't like, ultimately know with absolute and total 100% lockdown scientific security. Because I've seen people preach the gospel who are no longer believers. So they evidently were believers, but they were not regenerate. And that's a weird thing. You've sat into the preaching of people who actually were never born again, but you thought they were. Well, a person can play the game and get the emotions going and even convince themselves, but they're not truly regenerate, evidently. And that becomes evident over time. But I'm concerned about the question of who's the real deal and who's not the real deal. I'm not concerned about being the real deal one day and then I'm not the next and then I am the next and then I'm no longer the next. So I'm not into the, I can literally lose my justification and get it back. I'm not into that. What I'm interested in is how do we know someone who truly in a bona fide way is justified? How do we know who those people are? And the first person that concerns me is how do I know I am? And then as a community of faith, as we appoint people to leadership or work with people, we want to see some evidence in other people's lives as well. But if, 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 if justification either is or isn't solely a gift from God, and if I give you a gift, I won't take it back. But I don't know if I want to spend too much time on that because I'm just using like anecdotal evidence. I'd rather wrestle with the scripture in a theology class on that one. I'm just sharing with you belief systems from a historical perspective. Okay. I think we're out of time. So we're going to end there. Uh, just a reminder, because of the Vertical Church Conference next week, there's no class next Tuesday.